This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Good Saturday morning. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue, this Saturday. Wealth Advisor, Certified Financial Planner, Accredited Investment Fiduciary, all those nice things. Going to start out with our normal weekly wrap. And uh, the holiday-shortened week was another losing one for the stock market. Investors were still saddled with the same issues that drove last week's downbeat price action. Those issues included a lingering sense that the market was due for consolidation, another jump in Treasury yields, and a growing belief that the Fed is likely to keep rates higher than expected for longer than expected. The latter point was drawn to the forefront midweek when investors received the FOMC minutes for the January 31st and February 1st meeting. They weren't overly hawkish sounding. They weren't overly dovish sounding. That doesn't mean, however, that they were just right. That's because they weren't really dovish at all. The default position continues to be a rate hike position. Market participants are cognizant that many of the data releases following the last FOMC meeting are not likely to change members' mindsets, namely a stronger-than-expected January employment report, the stronger-than-expected ISM Services PMI report, the January CPI and PPI reports, they all capped off by this week's stronger-than-expected core PCE price index, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. Some of the anxiousness surrounding price hikes may have been tempered on Friday by St. Louis Fed President Bullard, not an FOMC voter who is generally a more hawkish Fed official. Mr. Bowler, after the hotter-than-expected core PCE price index was released, remarked that it appears that the Fed may be able to disinflate in an orderly manner and achieve a relatively soft landing. There were some upside moves in the market following Nevada's pleasing earnings and guidance before the positive bias was overshadowed by a rate of right concerns. The downside bias this week had the S&P 500 take out support at its 50-day moving average during well, before flirting with its 200-day moving average, which ultimately held up. Price action in the Treasury market was another headwind for equities this week, creating evaluation concerns and worries about competition for stocks. The two-year note rose 17 basis points to 4.78%. The 10-year yield which tested the 4% level, rose 12 basis points to 3.95%. The U.S. dollar index rose noticeably this week, up 1.4% to 105.26. Only one of the 11 S&P 500 sectors registered a gain this week. Energy was up two-tenths of 1%, while the consumer discretionary was down 44 Communication services were also down 4.4, and they suffered the steepest losses. West Texas Intermittent Crude Oil futures fell a tenth of 1% this week to 76.41 a barrel. Natural gas futures surged 10.1% to $2.50 per million BTU. So here are the truncated summaries of the daily action. On Tuesday, the stock market kicked off its holiday-shortened week with a broad retreat. Market participants took money off the table following a strong start in 2023 amid rising market rates and increasing geopolitical tension. By Tuesday's close, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had given back all of its 2023 gains. The S&P 500, for its part, closed the session just a whisker shy of the 4,000 level. Geopolitical angst was helping to drive price action in both the bond and stock markets on Tuesday. 
Wall Street Journal reported that China's President Xi will likely head to Moscow in April or May to meet with President Putin and encourage peace talks. That view runs contrary to Secretary of State Blinken's accusation over the extended weekend reported in the New York Times that China is considering providing lethal assistance to Russia. Also, President Putin announced Russia will suspend its participation in the New START nuclear treaty. Recession concerns were also in play following disappointing full-year guidance from Dow Components, Home Depot, and Walmart. A big loss in Home Depot helped drive the S&P 500 consumer discretionary sector to its first, uh, to last place on Tuesday. Reviewing Tuesday's economic data, every IHS market manufacturing PMI preliminary had been 47.8, prior was 46.9. In February's IHS market services PMI preliminary was 15.5, prior had been 46.8. In January's existing home sales of 4 million, prior was revised to 4.03 million from 4.02 million. The key takeaway from the report is that sales remain pressured by high mortgage rates and economic uncertainty, which in turn have led to the extended time of existing homes, the sale of remaining on the market, and a decided moderation in median selling prices. On Wednesday's trade started with a more positive tone that held the main indices oscillating around a narrow range right above their flat lines. Moves were modest in scope. So as investors awaited the FOMC minutes for the January 31st and February 1st meeting at 2 o'clock on Wednesday, the minutes indicated that substantially more evidence of progress across a broader range of prices would be required to be confident that inflation was in a sustained downward path. There were also a few participants that wanted to raise rates by 50 basis points or a half a percent at that meeting. Nonetheless, there wasn't anything too surprising in the meetings, in the minutes. Immediately after the minutes were released, the stock market experienced some whipsaw price action before setting into a slow decline. Downside moves were not outsized, however, so the late afternoon selling pressure may have been a reflection of ongoing consolidation efforts rather than a renewed concern surrounding the Fed's rate hike path. Ultimately, the main indices were able to climb out of their post-FOMC minutes lows by the closing bell. The S&P 500, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, were pinned just below their flat lines, while the NASDAQ squeezed out a slim game. Wednesday's economic data was limited to the weekly Mortgage Banker Association Applications Index, which fell 13.3% from a 7.7% decline in the prior week. And on Thursday, Thursday's trade started and ended. On a more upbeat note, the S&P 500 was able to break a four-day losing streak following pleasing earnings and guidance from Divida, which fueled buying interest in mega cap and growth stocks. The main indices did, however, spend a good portion of the session pinned below their flat lines as investors digested disappointing earnings and their guidance from many consumer-oriented companies, eBay, Dollar General, Domino's Pizza, Dutch Brothers, and Wayfair were among the most notable standouts in that regard. The main stock picking point for the stock market participants was that less discretionary spending is apt to translate into slower growth and further cuts to earnings estimates while the Fed looks intent on raising rates higher than expected for longer than expected. The downside moves had the S&P 500 fall below the 4,000 level and its 50-day moving average was at 3,980. Buyers stepped in to buy the dip, though, and the main indices all finished the session with strong, uh, decent gains. Strikingly, market rates declined on Thursday following some initial jobless claims in the fourth quarter GDP data that supported the Fed's case for continuing to raise rates. So if you read Thursday's economic data, I know it's a lot of it, Initial jobless gains for the week ending February 18th declined 3,000 to 192,000. Continuing claims for the week ending February 11th decreased by 37,000 to 1.654 million. So the key takeaways from this report is that it covers the period in which the survey for February employment report was taken. The remarkably low level of initial claims will 
contribute to expectations for another strong gain in non-farm payrolls and the Fed sticking to its uh, tightening ways. The second estimate for the fourth quarter GDP showed a downward revision to 2.7% growth from the uh, advance estimate of 2.9. That was driven by downward revision in personal spending growth to 1.4% from 2.1%, and the GDP, GDP price deflator was revised up to 3.9% from 3.5%. The personal consumption expenditures index, meanwhile, was revised up to 37 to 3.2%. The key takeaway from the report is that it's off-putting mix for the Fed. Growth is still running above potential. Inflation is still running above target. So the weekly EIA crude oil inventory showed a build of 7.65 million barrels following last week's build of 16.28 million barrels. Weekly EIA natural gas inventory also showed a draw of 71 a billion cubic feet versus a draw of 100 billion cubic feet the previous week. We'll continue with this week's economic update when we come back after a short break. Thank you for being with us. So we're here with Eric from Ferndale. Eric, why do you own a gun? I believe in safety first and self-defense. Here with Liz from Bellingham. Liz, why do you own a gun? I own a gun for the same reason I own a fire extinguisher, in case of emergency. Wayne from Linden. Where did you buy your firearm? The Linden gun sale. I got mine there. Sent my parents there, friends and neighbors too. Hands down the best anywhere. Well, there you have it, folks. Come to the Linden Gun Sale at the Northwest Fairgrounds this weekend. Saturday 9 to 6 and Sunday 9 to 4. For details, go to BigTopPromos.com. Hello, folks. Are you ready to get your estate planning affairs in order, but you don't know where to start? Would you like to hear about the difference between wills and trusts? Do you want to learn how to avoid probate? Do you have questions about Social Security and Medicare? Is it important to you to make life as easy as possible on your spouse and loved ones if something should happen to you? This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham. Join me right here on KGMI every Saturday at 1 p.m. for the Aging Hour. And let me show you how to set your family up for success in your retirement. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. The Wheelchair Warehouse, operated by the Bellingham Central Lions Club, loans mobility equipment to the public at no charge. The Wheelchair Warehouse is supported by Lions Club volunteers and your generous donations. The staff at the warehouse has a special request of anyone who has recently checked out the following items. Bedside commodes, shower benches, shower stools, and toilet seat risers. They ask if you've completed use of these items, please return them as soon as possible. The Lions thank you and your fellow citizens in need of them thank you. Dedicated to service. Brought to you by Neater House of Luxury, Bellingham's newest fine jewelry store. They're also a certified precious metals dealer, American Gold Eagles, Gold and Silver Bars, and a great selection of platinum. On Squalicum Harbor, 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, Bellingham. Follow the bright light, Neater House of Luxury. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up. Welcome back. Welcome back. Take care with you this Saturday morning. Thanks for being with us. Asset Advisors, we are located out on the Pacific Highway next to Wilson's Furniture in the Pacific Commerce Center. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway Suite, 101 Ferndale, 9248. Our phone number is 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. Okay, continuing on with this week's economic update, we'll talk about Friday's stock market. It was decidedly weak on broad-based selling interest following the hotter-than-expected inflation data. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge, the core PCE price index, accelerated to 4.7% year-over-year in January versus 4.6% in December. Real personal spending was up 1.1% month-over-month. Real disposable personal income was up 1.4% month-over-month, and the personal savings rate after revisions increased to 4.7% from a previously reported 3.4%, suggesting that there is more fuel for consumers to keep spending. The rub of this report was that it showed inflation, 
not disinflation, and a good bit of spending potential should keep the economy running above potential. That combination piqued concerns about inflation remaining sticky at higher levels for longer that, and in turn, would prompt the Fed to stick to its tightening ways and stick with higher rates for longer than the market previously expected. The S&P 500 opened its 50-day moving average at 3,981. It quickly headed lower, nearing its re- re- nearly reaching its 200-day moving average at 3,940. The low of the day, 3,943, the main indices were able to recover noticeably, however, and their worst levels of the day, despite logging sizable losses by the close. So reviewing Friday's economic data, January's personal income was 0.6%. Prior, it was revised to 0.3% from 0.2%, and January's personal spending was 1.8%. The prior was revised to minus one-tenth of 1% from minus two-tenths of 1%. And January's PCE prices were 0.6%. The prior was revised to 0.2 from 0.1. January's PCE prices core prices were also 0.6%. Prior was revised to 0.4% from 0.3%. The key takeaway from the report is the recognition that there isn't disinflation at this report. There's a, there is inflation in it, which is peaking concerns about inflation remaining sticky at higher levels for longer than that, in turn, would prompt the Fed to stick to its tightening ways and stick with higher rates for longer than the market previously expected. January's new home sales of 670,000 prior was released to five, six, was, was revised prior a month that would be was revised to 625,000 from 616,000. The key takeaway from the report is it reflects how rising mortgage rates are impeding sales of high-priced homes, evidenced by the 46.9% year-over-year decline in the high-priced West region and declines in both median and average selling prices. That's a 46.9% in the number of sales, not the prices, by the way. The 7 tenths of 1% decline in the medium selling price was the first decline since August of 2020. In the February University of Michigan's Consumer Sediment Study also came out, and the final was 67.0. Prior had been 66.4, and the key takeaway from this report is the acknowledgement that consumers continue to show considerable uncertainty over short-run inflation. So if we're looking at the numbers for the end of the week, we found that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now down 1% for the year. The NASDAQ, however, is still up 8.9%. The S&P 500 is up 3.4%. And the Russell 2000 Index is still up 7.3% for the year. Okay, looking at some of our high-frequency data tracker that we follow every week. We've got our report out this week in initial jobless claims as of February 17th, as I mentioned a minute ago, were 192,000. Now, to give you a comparison, back in 2019, they were at 199,000. So that's 3.5% less than we had back in 2019. And this week-over-week drop is also a 1.5% drop in the number of unemployed. The continuing jobless claims as of February 10th, 1,654,000, that's also 7.3% below what we had in 2019, and that was a 2.2% drop for the week. Box office receipts finally had a decent week as of the week ending the 23rd of February. They were up a total of 124.3%. Rail car traffic as of the 17th of February was down 1.5%. Steel production was down as of the 20th of February, about 0.6 tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy, showing the reflection on spring break time and people getting back out there again, uh, was a 60.8%. Now, comparative levels, 2019, it was at 59.4%. So that's 2.4% better than 2019, and it was a 5.2% increase for the week. The operational state of the restaurant industry also saw an increase as of February 22nd of 9%. The TSA checkpoint data as of the 23rd of February, 2,243,021 passengers a day went through TSA checkpoints. That was an increase of 10.2% for the week. That number also 
is showing very good numbers. It's still down about 2% from where it was in 2019, but that's a really nice increase. The supply of motor gasoline as of the 17th of February was up 7.2%, and global commercial flights as of the 23rd of February were 108,160 a day. Uh, that compares to 106,751, so that's actually 1.1% better than back in 2019. And for the week, it was also up four-tenths of 1%. So we're seeing some really nice numbers coming up as far as the uh, increase in travel, the increase in hotels. Uh, of course, you're also seeing that in the reflection in the increased fare fares and all the other stuff out there, or even the increase in hotel prices. So it is a supply and demand issue. This has been Dick Donahue with you with World Wake Up Live here in KGMI. We'll be back after a quick break. Thank you for being with us. It's game day at Jim's house, and the spread is impressive. Mike's already done some damage with the hot wings, and now he's dropping back and going deep for another slice of pizza. I sure hope he brought the Pepto. Mike knows the Pepto-Bismol provides fast, five-symptom relief from unexpected stomach upsets. He's no rookie. <laughs> the way he's throwing back those nachos, he's the GOAT. Be ready for game day with Pepto-Bismol. When you have nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Use as directed. Keep out of reach of children. Hi, this is Joe Cordell with the law firm Cordell & Cordell. When the prospect of divorce becomes a reality, you need a partner that you can count on. If you're a man in this situation, consider contacting Cordell & Cordell. We've helped men navigate complex legal matters for 30 years. For matters in Idaho, visit CordellCordell.com. That's CordellCordell.com. Cordell & Cordell, a partner men can count on. 101 South Capitol Boulevard, Suite 500, Boise, Idaho, 83702. Hi, I'm Tom Borthwick, the Diamond King. Borthwick Jewelry does custom work and custom designs. A 3D computer-generated design from several angles can be made for $250. This design price includes designing, wax carving, casting, and cleanup after casting. Your scrap jewelry can be used for trade-in value, which will lower the price of your custom item. Customers love seeing the modern 3D design before they commit to buying the item. At Borthwick's, we custom design for you. Borthwick Jewelry, exit 262 in Ferndale. Attention business owners and managers. Looking to hire? Having trouble reaching the right candidate? Candidates? Do you have more job openings than applications? Secure your table now for Cascade Radio Group's Job Fair, Thursday, March 16th in Bellingham at Four Points by Sheraton from 2 until 6 p.m. The March 16th Job Fair is a production of Cascade Radio Group and HireMeWa.com. For details and to register, talk to your CRG radio rep or send an email to jobfair at cascaderadiogroup.com. That's jobfair at cascaderadiogroup.com. KGMI Connects with Joe Tian is about our community and you. I and a lot of other people would like to see Biden rot in hell. Oh, you okay. know what? He gave away our biggest bargaining chip. Each weekday at 4 p.m. You know, I kind of agree that if Griner was a white sheetrock hanger from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and I think it did the same thing, yeah, he'd probably still be there. That's just the way the world turns. On KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Belly and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. A rare winter storm has been hitting Southern California. Weather Channel meteorologist Mike Bettis. Significant snow. You take a look at the highest elevations. Another four to five feet. Winds gusting over 60 miles an hour. Blizzard conditions at times, even in the Southern California mountains. Then there's a lot of rain in the forecast as well. Outside the Russian embassy in D.C. last night. Protesters joined in solidarity for Ukraine on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. Disbarred lawyer Alec Murdoch faced a second day of intense questioning in his double murder trial. Good or bad idea for him to take the stand? He had to admit that he had lied about many things. He had to admit about his financial misdeeds. He had to admit that, in fact, he made up things when he talked to the investigators. They're back at it on Monday morning, and that's legal analyst Lori Levinson. CBS News Brief, I'm Stacey Lynn. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land.
Ellsworth, University of California, Davis economists found that immigration slowed to a trickle during lockdowns. This led to 2 million fewer working-age immigrants in the U.S. by 2021 than in the historical level that it had, if it had continued. And while that could have made up for the big chunk of the missing workers at the height of the pandemic, immigration has since picked up and likely play a smaller role in Americans' worker shortage today. And finally, Americans suffering from long COVID is an underappreciated culprit in the missing worker history. Late last August, the estimates were that long COVID reduced the U.S. labor force by an equivalent of 1.6 million when accounting for those who either worked fewer hours or left entirely. That's probably more down to somewhere in the range of 500 to a million at the present time. Basically, we all have one thing, single, single line of inclination. Don't think there's a puzzle to this one because there are too many missing pieces. I'm sure they're going to fix it to all this one real quick, but it's kind of interesting to follow. Where are the workers at? We also have a report out this week talking about uh, investors say that they need at least $3 million to retire comfortably. It's one of the thorniest financial questions about how much is enough to retire. The question is somewhere between 3 and $5 million, according to 553 investors worldwide, who shared their views in the latest MLIB Pulse survey. About a third of investors paid at $3 million, or roughly another third at $5 million. Most respondents are optimistic that they'll move closer to their retirement goal by the end of 23, and more in retirement savings than they had at the end of last year. Last year, inflation and rising borrowing costs hammered stocks, and since bond prices also plunged, the average U.S. 401k plan retirement plan was down over 20% at plans that were held at Vanguard as a record keeper. This year, both professional and retail investors expect stocks and bonds to resume their traditional relationship by moving in the opposite directions, with fixed income serving as a cushion for any potential losses from riskier assets. Respondents were not as sure about whether they'd ultimately have enough saved in to maintain their lifestyle in retirement. Less than half of investors placed that odds at more at 100%. It's no wonder many would-be retirees are doubling the viability of their death stakes. They're doubting them. While inflation appears to be cooling off, it increases the amount of funds that a person needs to have in retirement. And the uncertainty likely also reflects the economic outlook with corporate profits shrinking and recessions possibility later this year. Whether the expected gain in 401k balances will come from investments or for contributions is unclear. A lot of retirement savings are invested in index funds that track the S&P 500, and particularly for older savers, inactively managed equity funds weighed heavily into what we call the benchmark index's top stocks. During the bull run, mega cap stocks like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, of Alphabet and Mega Platforms uh, came to dominate the index. Now, basically, we refer to these as the FANG stocks, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Apples, the Netflix, the Googles, plus Microsoft. They basically were the leading, the very concentrated portfolios for many savers. They kicked off the the year with a nice rally this year after a horrible 22. Nonetheless, investors expect those market leaders to be supplanted, which means that we're going to find new market leaders. Asked whether the same general group of giant stocks will drive the U.S. market performance over the next three years, 58% said that they expect new leaders to emerge as far as far as which stocks are going to lead the market in this next direction. So most investors are adjusting the retirement plans despite the uncertain economic outlook and recent losses in their accounts. Some 50% of survey respondents said that they were sticking with their retirement plans. About 8% said that they are thinking about never retiring. So interesting numbers coming in out there from retired or to be retired. So an interesting report come out here this week from the Washington Policy Center. They put out a lot of really interesting and up-to-date information at different times. And it said, if we want to make housing affordable, we should quit making it less uh, affordable. 
and the study was released that detailed ways in which government rules and regulations have added significant costs to housing construction and contributed heavily in making housing less affordable in Washington. Reading through the study, you'll see a theme of government inventions, most of the most with good intentions, that have unintended consequences that are now adding to what is becoming an affordability crisis that has long-time Washington residents wondering if there's a place that their kids or grandkids will ever be able to make a start in. Front and center is the Growth Management Act. It's a relic of the 1990s. It has long been cited by builders as a major contributing factor in housing challenges. Yet, when it comes to affordable housing, we rarely have ever hear about the need to revisit regulations to see if they're achieving their objectives and doing so in the best way possible. It is common to hear people in the construction trades lament permitting fees and delays and also complications. And they hear officials call for a review of those requirements to assess whether they could be simplified, streamlined, and saved hassle, time, and money for builders, homeowners, and taxpayers. Here are some key takeaways from that report. As much as 24% of housing price increases in the country level may be attributed to the Growth Management Act. The GMA slowed progress in increasing housing affordability statewide by as much as 5.1%. Public policy, state and local laws, permitting building restrictions, regulations at an extra average $144,000 to the cost to construct a new medium-priced home. The recent Washington State Building Code Council's new rules banning the use of natural gas in residential and commercial new construction are estimated to add an additional $24,070 to the cost of a new home. Seattle's fee list for permitting regulations is 60 pages long. It includes a $271 charge for vacancy inspection. And according to Building Industry Association of Washington, the state zoning process adds an average of $71,739 to the cost. That's the state zoning regulations. And the green building standards consistently increase costs for failing to deliver on their environmental promises. Again, this is a report. You can find it at WashingtonPolicyCenter.com. Go ahead and check it out. Stick down to you with you with 12 Point Live here at KGMI. We'll be back shortly. This is Barry Barometer, reporting live from outside Linden Sheet Metal. It appears there is a high level of traffic around the building. I'm going in to investigate. Rose, do you know the cause of all this activity? I do. You have heard about Christmas in July sales. Well, we thought why not do the opposite and have a summer in the New Year event. Hmm, sounds intriguing. What details can you provide? All gas fireplaces, furnaces, heat pumps, and air conditioners are on sale with discounts up to $900. There are still utility rebates and there are tax credits too. We also offer financing up to 18 months with no interest if paid within terms. Why buy now, Rose? Lots of reasons. To save on utility bills, stay warmer in the winter, and to beat the rush of those who waited and be ready for cooling this summer. There you have it, folks. Call today and take advantage of Linden Sheet Metal's Summer in the New Year event. Linden Sheet Metal, serving the Northwest since 1940. Are you thinking about retirement and wondering if you can even afford to retire? Are you concerned with layoffs at your company and wondering how you would afford individual or COBRA insurance for your family if you should lose your group coverage? Do you know if you or your dependents qualify for tax credits through the Washington Health Plan Finder? Tune in this Saturday at noon to hear Marcia Neal, Senior Agent at Vibrant USA, explain how working with an independent broker can help put your mind at ease and give you the answers you need as you prepare for your future. One in four Americans have a disability. I'm one of them. I'm also a working mom who cares deeply about making sure every child with a disability thrives by getting their access needs met. We've got a trusted ally by our side. Easter Seals provides children and families the foundation for lifelong success through early learning programs, skills training, and prep for college and career. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Join us at EasterSeals.com. If tomorrow all the things were gone I'd work for all my life And I had to start again With just my children and my wife Welcome back to Dr. 
Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here on KGMI. You got questions for us? Give us a call, 360-733-1200. Well, we saw that the housing market posted a $2.3 trillion drop. That's the largest since 2008. And the value of U.S. housing market shrunk by the most since 2008 as the pandemic boom fizzled out. After peaking at $47.7 trillion in June, the total value of U.S. homes declined by $2.3 trillion, or 4.9%, in the second half of 22, according to the real estate brokerage Redbit. That's the largest drop in percentage terms since the 2008 housing crisis when home values slumped by 5.8% from June to December. Home buyers already facing record high prices took an additional hit for mortgage rates that more than doubled last year. With less competition in the market, the median home sale price was $383,249 last month. That was down from a peak of $433,133 in May of last year. You want to do the math on that? That's a $50,000 drop between May of last year and the median home sales price here of the last month. The housing market has shed some of its value, but most homeowners still reap big rewards from the pandemic housing boom. The total value of homes remains roughly $13 trillion higher than it was in February of 2020. And to be sure, home prices are not collapsing. In December, the total value of U.S. homes is still 6.5% higher than it was a year earlier. Seeing big gains in Florida, and how much homeowners lost depends on where they bought. The biggest declines were Paula's pricey cities like San Francisco and, and New York. While buyers who moved to the pandemic boom towns are still seeing the returns on their investment, particularly in Florida. This was especially true in Miami, where the total value of homes bloomed 20% year over year to $468.5 billion in December. That's the largest annual percentage increase among top metro areas. Overall housing market is down, but Miami's market was about the same value as when it peaked at $472 billion in July. Meanwhile, homeowners in North uh, Port Sarasota, Florida, Knoxville, Tennessee, Charleston, South Carolina, also saw annual gains above 17% in the year of 22. Pandemic boomtowns fared better than pricey cities. Home values in the Sun Belt have held up while some big cities have been hit hard. Tech workers have fled from more affordable locales. The total value of homes in San Francisco slumped by 6.7% year over year in December, most of any major U.S. metro area, followed by Oakland and San Jose, which lost 4.5% and 3.2% respectively. Other urban areas, including New York and Seattle, also saw annual declines. Florida's housing market is being sustained by folks moving in from the north end and as recently as and more recently now from the west coast. So shifts in population are having some picket points housing prices and what's going on out there. I'm gonna do a little couple of IRA updates here and things that I get questions about all the time. Um, this one question I have is um, they were talking about they're reading the new Secure 2.0 information, and a revised required minimum distribution age of 73 was mentioned uh, in this legislation. It was 72 was the <clears throat> was the RMD age, and the question was if this was affected 23. Is it correct that if you turn 72 and 23 that you don't need to be required to take an RMD this year? Based on what the, the red, they said the first RMD for a 72 year old 23.
24 RMD and the 25 RMD by December 31st of next year. So you do have a little flexibility. So if you're turning 73 this year, you do not have to take. Or turn 72 this year, you do not have to take that first RMD. Technically, if you turn 73 this year, you don't have to take the first one until April 1st of next year. So depending on your tax situation, you've got some ability to juggle this thing around. Next question I had is, do the IRS uniform life tables change for those who have not taken RMDs until they're 73? Well, no. The uniform table became effective that we're using now in 2022. Basically, that is going to replay in place. When someone is required to start taking RMDs at the age of 73, they would use a 26.5 life expectancy factor. That means that they're expected to have another 26 and a half years. And so you take your year-end balance at the end of the last year and divide it by 26 and a half, and then that table goes, uh, the life expectancy continues to decline as you move on ahead. And another question was uh, concerning the uh, Secure Act 2.0, transferring leftover 529 balances to a Roth IRA beginning in 24. If you had no income in 24, could you still do that? Well, only the beneficiary. For, for the 529 plan, for example, a child for whom the 529 was created for can receive that leftover $529 from their Roth IRA as a rollover. There are limits. You have a lifetime maximum of 35000 that can be rolled over. The 529 must have been open for more than 15 years, and the annual rollover amount cannot exceed the annual IRA contribution limits. So what we're saying is if a, a beneficiary of a 529 plan has money in the plan, yes, they can do it. They can move that money over to a Roth IRA, but they have to have had the plan for at least 15 years, and the maximum they can do is 35000 but you also are limited where you can't put, do, put money in in any year. You have to have earned income, so the beneficiary can go up to the annual IRA limit. So let's say that's $6,000. That means that over about six years, with some cost of living increases in the future, they could move up to $35,000 over into a Roth IRA. Also had a question about their 72 and several Roth accounts. They want to know how the five-year rule works. Basically, the five-year rule says that you have a Roth for five years, set up a new Roth. The, the new Roth takes on the age that they started a new one. So you don't have to wait five years to take fast withdrawals from that Roth IRA. And so if you're over 59 and a half, since you have another Roth, if it's open, so you meet your obligation, you have immediately tax-free withdrawals from the new account. The IRS does not care if you have multiple Roth IRAs held at multiple custodians. So a little key here, go out and set up a Roth IRA, put $100 in it. Once that five-year clock is up, any future Roth conversion, that money can be taken out immediately after 59 and a half without a tax penalty. And talking of taxes, we're seeing reports that Biden thinks that he can basically pay for everything by taxing the wealthy. We're finding reports that are saying that he can't. They have plans to expand the government's role in the economy. It's also promising that no one who earns less than $400,000 is going to pay more in taxes. But basically, we can't have it both ways. Even paying for current government will require that everyone level up their contributions or, or, or learn to live with fewer government services. Social Security is the elephant in the room. If nothing is done to increase funding for the program, benefits will have to cut 20% in the next 10 to 12 years. Reserves run dry, fewer people paying in to cover the outflows. That's clearly unacceptable because many seniors depend on that money. The sooner we address the problem, the smaller the cost is going to be to fix it. The Biden administration's only solution so far has been to increase taxes on high earnings, starting with lifting the cap on earnings subject to payroll taxes. Consider this tweet from outgoing chief of staff, Ron Klein. The tax rate is actually 12.4%, not 6%, when you include the employer contribution. But as it stands now, only earnings up to $160,200 are subject to that 12.4% payroll tax that finances Social Security benefits. That's paid mostly to seniors. Eliminating the cap sounds like an easy way to restore solvency and it'll affect the only a few rich, but the numbers don't add up. Rich people only have so much money. 
there's a limit on what you can be get, get by taxing them. Even if you tax everything they own and earn, it wouldn't be enough to pay for the government we already have, let alone the additional government many people want. So let's suppose uh, this year, this is subject all, subject, subject all taxes above 12.4%. The worker who is 250000 now owes more than $11,000 in new taxes. Assuming they don't get a larger Social Security benefit in exchange for this tax increase, it still doesn't solve the problem. Eliminating the cap only covers 75% of Social Security's long-term shortfall. If the 12.4% tax kicks in on incomes above 250000 only 73% of the shortfall is covered. And we get even less if the tax is applied only to income above 400000 as has been proposed by President Biden. So... Basically, it's an uphill climb. They get to work. They need to figure out some way to broaden the tax base across the works. They're going to run out of money. You know that. Kick down a few weeks. We'll wake up live here in case your mind. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Thanks for listening. Give us a call if you've got questions. 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a great week. voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.